Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here to break down everything that happened in the world of WWE this week. Not only SmackDown from Friday and Raw from Monday, but everything in between as well. We have a lot to get to on today's show. And unfortunately, we only have vintage Chris Vanini for a short period of time. So let's make the most out of it. Allow me to remind you off the top that this podcast is all about Defy. So please stop being marks for yourselves and Go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King and Vintage. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here for you on the show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and so much more. You can also send us DMs, questions for the show, comments, and just tweet at us and have a conversation about professional wrestling all on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do too, because for only $5 a month, you can become an official Getting Overhead by going to buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. The link is also available in our Twitter bio at Getting Overcast. Sign up and get bonus audio after the four major American professional wrestling shows, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, as well as news posts, every week covering WWE and AEW. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. The number is right. You know what you love it. It's all about the five. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. I know you are on site in Orlando, Florida this week. I know one of the things you're doing is visiting UCF, talking to some Golden Knights. The question is, are you going to make your way over to the WWE Performance Center at any point? That is the plan. I'm trying to go over there on Wednesday. They're having an NIL event. Uh, Some of the athletes are there. I I may be doing a follow-up story to something I did last week. So that is the plan. Not only am I on site here in Orlando, not only am I in your state. I'm I'm not down in in, in the Fort Lauderdale area, but I'm in Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, this is the 450th episode of this podcast. It, and I know that because while I was on my way here, I listened to episode 449, where you did Rhea NXT and AEW last week. So people should go listen to that as well. But 450. It is indeed episode 450 of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, which not only speaks to the longevity of the show, which let me remind everyone once again, began during the pandemic at the start of the pandemic, the first two and a half or however many years of this show. We were watching wrestling in a Thunderdome or an equivalent to that, Daly's Place. I mean, whatever, wherever the hell it was, we weren't watching with fans. We made it through that. We made it through some pretty rough booking for WWE for an extended period of time. And now we are existing in a world where professional wrestling is as popular as it has been in the United States in years. I'm not suggesting that it's anywhere near the Attitude Era or even, you know, 10 years ago based on ratings and some of those things. But in terms of attendance, show ratings, uh, the trends, what's happening in terms of things going up, the money that these companies and the superstars, wrestlers themselves are earning, things are heading in a massively positive direction. And we have been there from the lowest of lows now 
to not necessarily the highest of highs, but the highest of recent highs. And it's very exciting to bring it all to you. That said, 450 is just a number. 500 is coming up sooner than later. And we will have a 500th episode spectacular here at the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. But Chris, we're not necessarily here to talk about our anniversary. We're mostly here to talk about Roman Reigns anniversary. You see that transition? That is what 450 Ooh. episodes does. Uh, Reigns 1000 day celebration. We will be getting to that momentarily. It is the first half of an extended double main event on today's show. Before we get to that, I wanted to go over briefly SmackDown and Raw, along with a couple really quick news items from WWE. SmackDown, I felt, Chris, on Friday was basically a one segment show. And now that segment, of course, being Roman Reigns' 1,000-day celebration and the implosion of the bloodline was as great a segment as WWE could produce for a quote-unquote single-segment show. But the other hour and 40 minutes of SmackDown legitimately, to me, felt like the most uneventful filler that we could get. We got four matches. Two of them lasted three minutes or less. One of those was a Money in the Bank qualifier, which is just insulting to me. The bloodline again delivered. It was a forgettable show. And again, an hour 40 without Reigns was nothing. And I'd go so far as to say SmackDown was bad. Now that said, turning around Monday night on Raw, this was one of my favorite WWE main roster television shows of the entire year. The first 90 minutes was banger after banger, not just matches, but segments. It just completely delivered. And then we got that fantastic main event, Seth Rollins against Damian Priest for the World Heavyweight Championship, Rollins' first defense of it. So you could not have delivered two more drastically different shows as far as I was concerned this week. Well, important there. I don't know if you were going to bring this up or not, but it may have been a one segment show for SmackDown, but the ratings were up. Oh yeah. Big, especially in the demo. And it just goes to show you just how important wrestling is. Like basically Everything around wrestling revolves. Do you have an A plus thing going on? Mm Because if you do, it rises all boats rating wise. The Attitude Era, for as much as we liked and didn't like, there was a period of time where it was a Stone Cold segment and then a bunch of nothing. But the ratings were berserk because everybody wanted to see that Stone Cold segment and that brought the ratings up for everything else. I think that's kind of what happened here on SmackDown. And so even, even if it was not a great episode overall, I think WWE generally got what they wanted. And oh, yeah. it just goes to show still how impactful Roman Reigns is. You know, he had that shirt being the needle mover. That's legitimate. And just how impactful the storyline is coming off of Night of Champions. People wanted to see what was going to happen. Yeah. I and mean, that's exactly how this is supposed to work. There's no doubt the needle mover moniker, shirt, whatever. It's been true of Reigns, not necessarily when he first had the shirt, but definitely over the last year or so. But never has it been more directly apparent than this rating from Friday. And I was not going to bring it up on the show because we generally don't really talk about ratings here, but I will since you mentioned it. SmackDown on Friday hit 2.56 million viewers, 0.73 in the 1849 demo. That's the best demo for this show since that huge Christmas special on December 25th, 2020. And that show had an NFL lead-in, which is the best Mm -hmm. lead-in you could possibly get. It also had the highest viewership 
since December 30th, 2022, which was the last show of last year. That was like 2.62 million. And this was 2.56 million. So very close to that. That's a holiday show that I don't think that had any competition whatsoever. So just an, an absolute monster number for SmackDown the first week of June. Yes, it was coming off a premium live event, but it was an entire week prior to that, you know, six days earlier. To do that kind of number was extraordinary. And, you know, SmackDown deserves credit. Reigns, of course, and the bloodline, they deserve all the credit in the world because this storyline is resonating. And if I've said it once, and spoiler alert, I'm going to say it again later, this is the greatest storyline in wrestling history. And there's also something to be said, and I don't really have us planning to discuss Roman's actual reign a little bit later. So let's just briefly talk about it right now. Chris, 1,000 days as champion in 2023. So going back, of course, to 2022 and 2021, this is not like having a 1,000 day reign in like 1971. I mean, there's weekly television. There's 12 premium live events a year. It is so much more difficult to create a story like this and have it last this long and have people be so interested in it that you're maybe not setting ratings records, but you're setting recent historic ratings marks at a thousand and however many days, a thousand and five, a thousand and six days. It's legitimately wild what is happening right now. And remember, the next closest modern reign, if I have this correct, was CM Punk in 2011-ish, 2012-ish. He went 434 days. That was a big part of the storyline back then. And this is more than double that. It will be more than He hasn't been the number one champion the whole time. It was obviously split titles come together or, or whatever. But remember, Roman went away at the beginning of the pandemic, when this show started, um, he wasn't there, right? basically. And he pops back up. He's a heel. He wins the title at Payback. We're like, oh, this is this seems pretty cool. This could go somewhere. I never would have imagined no. it getting to this spot. And, it, it, and again, it would have been... It, it's very, very difficult to make a 1,000-day reign interesting. Because, like you said, it's not 1975 and he's wrestling six times, uh, you know, barely ever on TV, you know, all these forget, types of things. Forget wrestling, forget wrestling six times because Reigns actually does not defend the title a lot. But even though he misses a lot of TV, he's still on TV all the time. And they're telling the story even when he's not there. Back then, they would right. never do something like that. They only tell the story when the champion's on the sh- on the show or Obviously, they didn't even have weekly TV in the 70s, just as an example. So it is unbelievable that this reign has gone on this long. And, you know, every three months, Roman goes away for a little bit and fans, oh, this is so boring. I can't believe this is still going. I was done with it four months ago. And then he comes back and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's the greatest storyline in wrestling history. And it's literally happening again. And it's getting really good ratings, like just to show you that. Right, like it's 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 working. It started under Vince, continued under Triple H. It's obvious that Triple H likes long title reigns, as we saw with Bianca and Gunther and everything else. Uh, but this takes the cake, and this is ultimately a reign that we will remember uh, forever. It, it will be among those all-time reigns, and 
you know, I grew up in the Attitude Era. I loved when the, the title was bouncing around all the time. I like that. I don't like long reigns in general, but I have been okay with this one because of the story that they've continued to tell. And that is a remarkable yeah. accomplishment. And again, even if you disagree with the fact that Reigns beat Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania, you thought that was the moment for Cody. That is a completely fair opinion to have. No question about it. But what you cannot do is look at the ratings, look at the attention, and look at the reactions that Reigns continues to get with this title and say, well, that was a bad decision. You can disagree with it, but you can't say it was bad. And that's where we kind of transition out of this we're going to touch on a couple more topics, and then we're going to get to the main event where we talk about what actually happened Friday. Those two other topics are going to be super quick. Chris, uh, Vince McMahon was backstage at Raw on Monday night, and some of the wrestling media uh, sent this information out like it was the Hindenburg going down. Like, oh, guess who's there? Get ready for a shit show. Meanwhile, like I mentioned, it was one of my favorite Raws of the entire year. I thought that was funny. They were in Hartford, you know, Connecticut, about an hour from the Stanford offices, apparently other WWE brass was backstage as well. I didn't notice anything about Raw on Monday night that gave any indication that someone other than Triple H had the book, or even then, and let's say Vince had more input tonight than otherwise, it certainly was not the Raw after WrestleMania travesty debacle that we got. So I had no issue with Raw, whether Vince was there or not, whether he had his hands in it or not. It was a good show, as simple as that. And lastly, Chris, I wanted to note WWE on Monday announced a new deal with Twitch, where not only will they be putting a ton of programming on that service, but among that programming will be shoulder content for Monday Night Raw. And I found that interesting because if you remember, WWE did that on the app a while back and USA Network got pissed at them that they did it because they felt it was taking eyes away from their product during the commercial break. But what WWE did on the app back then was like segments. They actually showed things happening backstage or the match in progress, things that you couldn't get on TV. Well, I tuned into Twitch on Monday. I was just curious what was happening. And we had Drew, Drew Gulak and two other people talking about Raw. And I think what I saw was correct. There were 900 people watching. So uh, let me just say for a company that's bringing in you know, approximately 2 million viewers to their TV show. And granted, this wasn't promoted and they did not promote it on Raw. Let's just be very clear about that. But, you know, 800, 900 viewers. I don't think anyone's getting upset about that. I don't know if this, what we got on Monday night on Twitch is going to be what they're doing going forward in terms of their shoulder programming for Raw, or they just did it quick because it was announced on Monday. And in terms of everything else they do, I assume it's going to be superstars playing video games, which... I find interesting given what we talked about the Twitch deal back in the day where WWE refused to let them stay on it and some superstars got really angry about it. Meanwhile, they're all back. They're getting paid more than they used to. And now WWE has some overarching deal with Twitch. Thought it was interesting. Didn't know if you had any thoughts on it. So the con I didn't see it on Twitch. So is it like a Manning cast situation or are they only talking during commercial breaks? They're talking during the show, but with no video of the show. So it's the Manning cast so without having the video. So you can't watch it at the same time. Okay. Did did they do it for the entire show? Do you know? No. So, I mean, I didn't watch it, watch it. I had it in a tab and I would keep going sure. and checking in and seeing what, what happened. Somewhere around yeah. like 9.30ish, maybe 10, 
the stream transitioned from the WWE stream to Drew Gulak's personal stream. And I closed the tab accidentally and I never went back to it. So I don't know exactly what happened, but every time I looked, it was three people just talking about Raw. Oh my God, what a great match. What a great move, like stuff like that. And I can't see why anyone anyone would watch that. Although I will say the commentary was better than what we get on Raw Monday nights. I was going to say like, there's a, you could make that interesting if you did it a Manning cast style. Like maybe Mick Foley just comes in and talks for, an episode or whatever like that. You'd have to have the video there, though. That's the problem. You'd have to be able to watch Raw on it, and they're not going to do that. Well, I I assume the idea is it's on your computer while Raw is on your TV. It is, but the Manning cast lets you watch the game on that channel. Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of using it as just like kind of a catch, Mm -hmm. more of a watch along. I think there's possibility there. However, I can't see myself ever watching it over Raw. I wouldn't you know, even watch it along with it. I want to hear the commentary. I want to hear the fans. You know what I mean? Like, right, yeah. right. That's like Manning cast or like some of these other things where it's like, you're like you said, you're, they're re, they're reacting to it on the screen. They're breaking down film. They're talking about that stuff. It, 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 watching raw is not watching sports. You can watch sports without the sound on. Right. You kind of got to watch raw with the sound. on. All right, folks, that was the intro. Just wanted to get your beaks wet for the rest of the program. We have two segments, not three, on today's show. Chris will not be with us the entire time. So we are skipping the last word. That's why we had this conversation at the top instead. But we do have the main event and the good, the bad, and the ugly both coming your way. Let's kick it off, as we always do, by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. So this is going to be a two-part main event. The major first part of the main event, of course, the bloodline on SmackDown, and then the second half, we will discuss Seth Rollins' first World Heavyweight Championship defense on Raw. So SmackDown on Friday opened with an extended video package that was a timeline of Roman Reigns' 1,000-day-plus run and who he passed in the record books to get there. No one was left out, including CM Punk, Daniel Bryan, and other people no longer in WWE. The Usos were not pictured at any point as part of the video, with it being like complete revisionist history. And then we had Paul Heyman and Solo Sokoa by Rainside when the bloodline was mentioned at any point in that video. I thought it was exceptionally well done, as one would expect. There were also lookbacks to key moments in the rain throughout the entire show. So Heyman ensured Sokoa understood backstage that the celebration had to be special, saying he would speak to Adam Pierce to avoid any hiccups, Michael Cole then explained that the Usos were not welcome to the festivities. When Heyman approached Pierce, he explained that security had been increased and Heyman was very pleased, didn't even debate with him. Triple H served as master of ceremonies. He presented Reigns with a new undisputed WWE Universal Championship title, which was basically the WWE Championship with a gold-plated back. Reigns held it and Pyro went off. And then after he said, acknowledge me, the Usos entered with SmackDown immediately going to commercial, which for any type of sports broadcast was absolutely ridiculous. It's like a team getting in the red zone and then you say, all right, let's go to commercial. No timeout though, we'll just come back. So anyway, we came back. Uh, Jimmy Uso was in Roman's face. Reigns told Jay to kick Jimmy in his face to fix the screw up at Night of Champions. Jay paced back and forth until Jimmy said that Roman needed fixing. He said he did it to remind Reigns he needs to treat brothers and family with love and respect. Jimmy said Roman has gone crazy, and he told Solo he would get manipulated and abused just like the Usos have been. 
Reigns gave Sokoa the mic to announce his loyalty, and Solo acknowledged the tribal chief, adding, but these two right here, they're my brothers. He walked away from Roman and sided next to the Usos. Jimmy gave Roman an ultimatum to either run together with them and do it with respect, or live on the island of relevancy as the tribal chief by himself. Reigns screamed for Jimmy to shut his mouth, only for Jimmy to just mush him in the face. The fans chanted, holy shit, at least I think they chanted that, because Fox muted the damn broadcast for 30 seconds. Roman went to attack. Jay got between them to mediate, saying he needs both of them. Jimmy said Roman's always been their brother, and they just want to run like they have been running, but doing it with respect this time. Reigns showed really strong emotions on his face. He hugged Jimmy really tight, and he started to cry in his arms. Then he looked up, and it turned out they were crocodile tears to manipulate him and lure him in. Reigns put the mic up to his mouth and simply said, no. Then he gave a side-eye glance to Solo, who immediately took out Jimmy, his older brother, with the Samoan spike, as the Usos looked completely broken emotionally with Solo choosing Roman over them. And then as SmackDown went off the air, Heyman asked Reigns off the mic, what about Jay? And Reigns responded, Jay will do what he always does, fall in line. What is there even to say at this point? You know, like this just fired on every single cylinder imaginable. Jimmy is nowhere near as strong an actor as J.R. Roman, but he did a damn fine job hanging with them from an emotional expressive type of standpoint. The fact that fans chanted, holy shit, just by him mushing Roman in the face tells you all you need to know about the heights this storyline is reaching. You also had the Usos in white, Reigns and Sokoa in black, which was a great visual. And anyone who has watched wrestling for more than a year knew exactly what would happen here. Reigns would pretend to go along with it only to give the order for Sokoa to take out his brother. And yet, It was still shocking and emotional the way it transpired. I mean, Big Show had to be jealous how quickly Solo turned face and then turned heel. He did it with the quickness. It was crazy. And then the off-mic comments from Heyman and Reigns, they did a great job clarifying that Jay was not yet on the outs and would face a major decision in the coming weeks. We have a number of angles to tackle here, and we're going to hit them all. But Chris, let's get you in to give your overall thoughts on this segment. I love. I, I really liked the way it played out at Night of Champions, how it was different than what Sami Zayn did. And that once again played out here. They're not just running the same thing back with Jimmy in Sami's place and Jay being the, the, you know, the uncertain person again. Mm-hmm. Jimmy being like, dude, we're not trying to leave you. He's not here saying, we're, we're going to take you down. We're going to end your championship reign. Jimmy's just saying, dude, you got to start treating us with some respect. Mm-hmm. Like, we're with you, but you got to, like, stop treating us like garbage, basically. And that is such a different and nuanced way to approach it. And that's 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 what a normal, that's what family would do. That's mm-hmm. what friends would do. You don't, like, turn on a friend and instantly become their, if you're upset with a friend, you don't instantly become their biggest, you know, villain or something like that. You're like, dude, like, let's work this out. And so I really liked that. And Roman 
you know, played with it a little, little bit. Yeah, look, we all knew Solo was going to turn on the use. It was like, we, people cheered, but like, it wasn't at all a surprise what right. happened. You're, every time the camera would cut out wide, you're just looking at Solo, waiting for him to do it. <laughs> you know, and he eventually did. But um, I really, I really liked it. I thought Jimmy really stepped up here and handled it very just how his character would handle it. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it all made sense again. And it was it was different than Sammy and KO, and I really like that. That's another really good point. It is going in a complete opposite direction from the storyline that we just finished, and it really is putting us back in the center of the Bloodline universe and their internal struggle, which is so interesting. So let's now tackle where we think this may go with Money in the Bank ahead, because Roman Reigns is going to be on that show. And I see two potential directions, either... Roman defending the title against Jimmy one-on-one or Reigns and Sokoa against the Usos in a tag team match. Now, that's obviously going to depend on what decision Jay makes this week on SmackDown. And I just feel like the tag team match is more likely. But Chris, if they do that, it would be another month without Reigns defending the title. Really two months because there would be zero Title defenses. Again, let me clarify for for you what I'm saying here. Zero title defenses. Block at zero. Between WrestleMania and SummerSlam, which is absolutely ridiculous if that's what happens. But I think that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to get a Roman Reigns tag team match for the second straight month. Well, look, that's why the World Heavyweight Championship was created, to have a championship to defend. We just got it defended on Raw this week. So, like, you know, I, I agree it's nonsense. I, I feel like champions should be defending it all the time. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to figure out how this could work because tag match makes sense. Roman versus Jimmy makes sense. Do we get, do, do we get some sort of Uso split? Do we do Uso versus Uso at some point? Mm. Or do we do Jay versus Roman at SummerSlam? Or does Roman fight somebody else? I don't I don't think Roman versus Jay is a big enough match for SummerSlam. See, so whenever Roman versus Jay happens, you would think it should happen after Roman drops the title, with Jay being the one to put the final stake in his heart. You know, just to just to end him and then eventually force him to come back, reevaluate himself, comes back as a baby face, and all that happens. But it really does feel like Roman and Jay should be last. What you could do, in theory, is Friday on SmackDown, have Jay stay with Roman and Solo. But it's actually a ruse that the Usos plan, and Jimmy fights Roman for the title at Money in the Bank. And then when Jay comes down, you think he's going to interfere and help Roman, He actually helps Jimmy. Now, it doesn't work, of course, and Reigns retains the title. But then you have your split between the Usos and Reigns and Sokoa. But then if you do that, what's the match at SummerSlam? Because right now on SmackDown, no one is being built as a legitimate number one contender. I guess someone could win Money in the Bank and then just call out Roman and say, I'm the holder and I'm challenging you for the title at SummerSlam. And that's how it happens. Maybe. But like Bobby Lashley, Edge, Rey Mysterio. I mean, there's, there is talent on this show and they're not building any legitimate number one contenders. So it's either the Usos 
perhaps Jimmy this month and Jay at SummerSlam. Or they're going to do a tag team match and just throw someone else in as a number one contender at SummerSlam. I just don't know what direction they're going. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do I do wonder if, you know, Uso versus Uso, if you were ever going to do it, this is where you would do it. Jay would side with Roman. Maybe they fight each other, mm-hmm. Uso versus Uso. Maybe they, maybe they just get together, back together after that, or maybe Solo, like, you know, comes in and gets them back together, and that's Solo leaving, like, there's a lot of possibilities here, and, and mm-hmm. that's 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 exciting. I, I think I think you can get away with not having a championship match at Money in the Bank because I assume you'll have a World Heavyweight Championship match, which we'll get into. Especially after Monday, you'll night. have money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll have you'll have Monday night. Um, you'll have Money in the Bank matches, and then you could say Roman and Solo win or lose. Uh, you end it with the Money in the Bank person like teasing a cash in but not actually cashing it. So you're still acknowledging the belt and all that kind of stuff, I think is certainly a way to do it. I, I don't like the idea either. I wish you would just defend it every month, but, you know. I'm not even asking though, Chris, for him to defend it every month. I'm just saying, <laughs> how about one time in four months? Because we've had Backlash, yeah. Night of Champions, now Money in the Bank. And then after Money in the Bank, there's a good while until SummerSlam. There's a possibility he does not defend it a single time in that entire span, which is just, it's, it's unacceptable. Yep. I mean, again, it's one thing to skip a month or, or skip six weeks, maybe two months. I could, I could explain it away. But four months, I mean, that is, it's, it, it's third of the year. I mean, it's wild. It's an, that makes the title reign not so much artificial, but it, it dampens the prestige of it when you're not defending it for a third of the year. Right. Right. After we talked about how amazing it was and great and everything. Exactly. But no, that, that has been, that has been the biggest issue is that he goes these periods without defending it. Although we had triple H tell us it's in his contract, but this would be the, this would be the longest period by far though, is what I'm saying. We can't, I, but I, I can just, I can get over it a bit more because we at least have the world heavyweight championship now. Right. That was the point of it. To have a world title on the line, you know, if they're telling us a good story and Roman is wrestling and things are happening, such as what happened at Night mm-hmm. of Champions, I can get over not having a title match at Night of Champions. So, you know, as long as it's good, I can get over it not being a title shot. Yeah, I, I agree. It would just be nice, I think, if it was happening alongside Reigns having a challenger. You know what I mean? Like yep. someone's going after the titles where there's a number one contendership tournament. And yes, I know money in the bank is happening, but that's different. That's for a contract you can cash in at any time. But it would be nice if something like that was happening where a number one contender was being determined while he was embroiled in this feud. Instead, he theoretically could come out of whatever happens at money in the bank and you know, obviously still be champion and then have no challenger. Now they have to spend whatever time they have developing a challenger out of nowhere for SummerSlam. And what are they going to do? A gauntlet? Uh, a two-week tournament. I mean, and then you just get a guy who's challenging him at SummerSlam. That's a big show. It's your, for WWE, then their quote-unquote number two show of the year. I still believe Royal Rumble is number two, but they promote SummerSlam as the number two show. They put it in a football stadium. And if that's going to be the case, then you need a headline, you know, heavyweight championship match or uh, undisputed WWE universal championship match. And right now it just, it feels like we're spinning wheels and, there's not an exact direction they're going, but look again, maybe it's just as simple as like Bobby Lashley comes back, they build them up and 
you know, two weeks after Money in the Bank, we're saying, oh yeah, Lashley's back and totally legit. Yeah. And this is a hot storyline. Maybe maybe that's what happens. Yeah, you can throw Lashley in. He's a main eventer when you get him. He's a guy who you put him in a match with Roman right away and like, we get it. And that that's that's totally All fine. he really... You can totally see Vince... Sorry. Vince feels yeah. like that's the SummerSlam match. We haven't had that match. You know, we have not had these two together in forever, really. It'll be a fresh matchup. Like, that'll be fine. And as I'm looking at Money in the Bank, because I was just thinking off the top of my head, could Jay win Money in the Bank? I don't believe so, based on who's already been announced and based on where the last spot is. Also, you'll you'll talk about it later in this pod, but this Money in the Bank ladder match is not... There are not a lot of big names in this thing. So no, the we'll uh, men's match in particular is lacking main event star power. And even the Very matches that have so. been announced for SmackDown don't necessarily add that, which is something. Yes, you're right. I will talk about later. Now, before we get to the title discussion, which is something that we do need to have, I did want to point out one major logic error from SmackDown. If there was supposedly so much security there to stop the Usos, why were they able to just calmly and peacefully walk out through gorilla position onto the stage without anyone chasing them, without them fighting anybody off? And then again, don't forget the show went to commercial. They come, it comes back. It's unaddressed. There's not security running out to get them and Paul Heyman saying, no, it's okay. Um, you know, nothing. Shouldn't they have been fighting off security or been forced to come through the crowd to get to the ring? Something. Yeah, no, ha- have them. Well, first off, all, all, on top of that, you had their music happen too. Uh, so like right. They got a full on. They got a full on thing. So pro- I think production was aware is, of it. Production was aware they were coming out, and no one stopped it. Exactly. I I think what you do is you have their music hit. They come out. Security runs in front to push it back, and you have Jay or Jimmy be like, "No, Oos, you scared of us? Let's talk, man. Let's exactly. Talk, let's talk." And, Ro- and Roman says, "Okay, guys, let's talk." You have to do something to address that. Otherwise, don't make it a story point. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, One more item, and then we'll discuss the actual titles themselves because something did happen on Raw. Uh, Paul Heyman appeared in a backstage segment. He said Jay would make his decision Friday on SmackDown, and it may rip apart the entire family. His spoiler was that Jay would stand by his brother solo because it's one thing to share a womb, but another when you compare that to being close to the tribal chief which is a great freaking line. He repeated that Jay would side with Roman or else. Expert level stuff from Heyman here. It was clear through the tone of the promo that Paul was like trying to actively convince himself that what he was saying would happen. It set the stage nicely for SmackDown and again mentioned the biggest story in WWE on Raw, but this time without Heyman having to appear in person and break the roster split. If WWE wants to promote one show within the other, that's fine. What they did here on Monday is exactly how you do it. So I just wanted to mention that before we move on. Now, Chris, in terms of the new title belt, the undisputed WWE Universal Championship that was unveiled Friday. there's Yeah, we, it's, we've had a lot of podcasts without talking. We've got a new title here. We do. It's weird. There's two conversations to have about it. First, the look. And then secondly, the usage of it. So let's start with the look. But I'm afraid I've got some bad news. Straight up, I dislike what I saw Friday. The concept of the gold backing makes sense, but there's two problems with it. One, 
They just introduced a big gold belt for the World Heavyweight Championship. And this greatly like reduced the visual differential between the two. And then number two, this is way bigger of an issue for me. The gold almost seemed yellow. And the logo is using black stones instead of the crystals, which makes it look extremely odd, almost like it's a championship made for the Pittsburgh Steelers or something like that. If you remember the gold title they made for Snoop Dogg, which I tweeted out Friday night, and you can go to at getting overcast on Twitter, just scroll down and find the head-to-head picture. I put them both right next to each other. That one was gold, and it had crystals in the logo. It also had green, obviously making reference to Snoop smoking weed, Uh, but you change that to red, and it's an extremely sharp title. That with a black strap even would have been so much better It's an appropriate concept for an undisputed title, but I just don't think the design they actually gave us was executed well. I prefer the black WWE championship 10 times out of 10 visually, and even the new world heavyweight championship, I think looks better than this. Yeah, I don't know if Triple H just doesn't like empty space in the backgrounds of titles or what, but this was not good, man. And look, I think it's pretty clear now after doing this several times, the belts just look terrible on the podium straight up. The lighting, the spotlights, whatever they're doing, it looks horrible on TV in that spot. It looks better when they hold it, when they wear it, when whatever. The World Heavyweight title has looked... I said this I said this when they revealed the World Heavyweight title. I said, it's going to look better than it did tonight. And it has. But this is such a it's such a, it's it's not much of an aesthetic change it's just like a color change i think it looks gross i think it looks gaudy i think it looks just, just weird i i agree with you i mean we a number of years ago on this podcast i think we like ranked our top five title looks and this might have been my number one the the plain wwe black, championship yeah the plain black wwe championship looks really nice mm-hmm. and that's the belt you've been hand- handing out to pro sports teams for years that's the belt that um that uh patrick mahomes wore at the kansas city chiefs mm-hmm. parade like people are used to it it's clear to see the wwe logo is hard to like read in this new belt like because like you said the way it's set up the i just i think it looks weird and gross and not only that it says undisputed universal or whatever undisputed title it says undisputed champion yeah it's not an undisputed title anymore well we have have two world champions he is the un so okay now like now it's getting technical and like whatever but he is the undisputed wwe universal champion meaning yes he he has those two titles and no one can dispute that he has those titles I think it's more it's more unified now than it is disputed because you have another world champion. So it's not like, unified. That, that, that's the thing. And I, that's what we're going to get to talking about in a little bit. It is not unified. That, like the original undisputed championship was because they bought WCW and there was nobody left. And it was the undisputed championship. That's what undisputed champions are. When you have all the championships, all the you know top championships. It's not undisputed anymore. I can't believe they put that on the title. Like they call him that, I get it, but to put it 
in writing on the title undisputed thing when you've literally got a brand new belt you were revealed like two three weeks ago like i just that bothered me as well so i i don't like the name i don't like the uh look of it uh very very big letdown for this new title and we'll talk about it in a second i don't exactly know how it works either yeah so yeah it just the visual of it for me it's honestly, I just think it's ugly. And I know there's other people who like it. I saw people tweet, I totally disagree with you. And that's totally fair. If you disagree, that's that's completely fine. But again, just go to our Twitter at Getting Overcast and take a look at the side-by-side between Snoop Dogg's title and this title. And you can see exactly where WWE went wrong. The back plating is a different color. It's more yellow than it is gold. And using black mm-hmm. stones in the WWE logo as opposed to the clear crystals, it just makes it look extremely odd. It makes it look even more yellow than it otherwise would. Snoop's title looks like a really sharp, expensive championship belt. This looks like a toy. It almost looks like a knockoff. They probably had to do the black because they had already done, they had already made the celebrity Snoop Dogg title, so they couldn't just literally do the Snoop Dogg title. They they blew the idea on, on the celebrity belt, I guess. I mean, it's just, I'm very disappointed in the way it looks. Now, look, maybe next week on SmackDown, the way he holds it and the lighting, all of a sudden it's going to look way, way better. And I will say, there was a photo shoot done with Roman Reigns sitting in a stairwell. You can find it on his Twitter account, where the title looks way better. But every mm-hmm. other photo of it, every single other one, including like the ones that are in a... um with a clear backdrop, a blank backdrop on WWE shops, so you can buy it. To me, they all look awful. And again, Roman Reigns holding it, sitting down in a dark stairwell because the lights weren't right. on it, maybe, is the best the that light, it looks. It's the lighting. But it's just, it's the lighting. but you're going to be, that title's going to be in the... front of the lights every single time because it's yeah, a TV it's show. So, you know? it's, it's an all gold belt, so it's going to be so reflective. It's just so weird. And... But it's but it but, but it's the yellow. point of this is to not be shiny. The point of it is to see the WWE logo. It's just it's more difficult, and I, I yeah I don't like it. Yeah, it's 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 really the yellow more than the gold. That's the number one thing that bothers me. The black stones being the second one. It, yeah, yeah. It just well, also you you compare the I have I pulled up the tweet the Snoop Dogg title versus this title. This is a more yellow gold. That's what I'm saying. The Snoop Dogg title. Yeah, like it literally is when you look at them side by side. That's exactly my point. Like, I, I, you know, it's it's tough to, to have a podcast and talk about something visually when everyone's just listening to us. But if you do do pull that tweet up just for comparison, you can blatantly see the difference between the two. One of them looks way better than the other one, and it's not the new Undisputed Championship. Now, the other part of this that's going to be curious here, Chris, is the usage of this title and the lineage. I cannot imagine that Reigns and Heyman are going to carry all three titles. But it struck me as odd that Heyman did not put down the WWE and the Universal title when Reigns picked up this one. Generally, what happens is when someone picks up a new title, they hand the old one off or the other ones go away off screen. And that did not happen. Now, it's possible that this is like a ceremonial award and they continue using the other two. But I imagine the purpose of creating an undisputed title is to use it singularly. And if they do, it's both good and bad. The positive is that it will no longer 
visually appear, and this is something you've been talking about, Chris, like WWE has three world titles. The appearance will be that Reigns has one and Rollins has the other. The negative, though, is let's just be honest. The look of Reigns carrying both the WWE and the Universal was way freaking cooler than just holding this one, especially when he like waved them around and slapped people with them. It made him look dominant holding both of those championships. And therefore, it's a bit of a downgrade in that respect as well, though it does clear up the quote-unquote three-world title situation by doing this. Well, not only did Paul Heyman not you know turn him in when he picked up the new title, he walked off with them. He yeah. walked off carrying the titles. They walked off of SmackDown with three championship belts. <laughs> like, I, I, well, I guess we'll see what happens on SmackDown. Maybe we have four world championship belts now. No, 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 be. no. Like, I don't, I, I, it's, it's like you're right. It, it wasn't made clear if this was just a one thousand day ceremonial belt or if it is the belt that is the belt moving forward. And we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Also, to your point, like Paul Heyman carrying one belt or carrying two belts while Roman talked was a good visual. Mm -hmm. Like, I got to give him credit for that as much as, you know, we we criticize the the belt situation. You know, I, I said when they created the World Heavyweight Belt, I said, you have to go to one belt. But that will only, I figured that just meant they retire the Universal Championship at some point. Well, that's and the next part. We'll get into the lineage. Here. Yeah, we'll get into the what the lineage means in a second. You're right. I left that segment just with more confusion over what any of this means, especially because they, they walked off with it. So how I feel about, like, I want one belt instead of two if you are creating the World Heavyweight Championship, which you did. If you did that, like... Like creating that belt meant you had three. Like it just, it did. And so they're going down to one, but they're not going down to one at the right time. And that's because of the lineage, right. which you can get into here too. Well, that's exactly the point. See, generally, when you create an undisputed title, this is kind of what you were talking about earlier, you simultaneously unify the titles. So you end the lineage of one and continue the other. Most recently in WWE, an example of this, is what they did with all of the NXT UK titles. They had people win them, uh, the you know NXT champions won them. They ended the lineage of the UK and they continued the lineage of the NXT US titles. That's just the most recent example. But here, you have Reigns record with the inferior championship. The one that's a thousand days and counting right now is the Universal. However, the WWE title is the one steeped in history dating back 65 years. So what they're doing is comparing Roman's reign with the Universal to the longest reigns in WWE championship history. So what's odd here is that they introduced a separate undisputed title without seemingly taking the lineage into account, or they did take the lineage into account, which is exactly why they did not further address the specifics of this. Because as of right now, based on everything I can tell from WWE's website, the way they've addressed it, um, the logos they're using for Roman, all that, it seems like this undisputed title is not a unified title. It is rather a physical representation of both championships 
and both reigns will continue, presumably until Roman actually loses, and then they'll retire the Universal, or they'll end that lineage and continue it with the WWE Championship. So it's convoluted as hell, and that's why, Chris, I always felt there's no need to introduce a new title until he loses. And when that happens, if you want to bring in a new title, fine. But more importantly, you end the Universal Championship and you just continue everything with the WWE. But now they've put themselves in this position where they created a new title because of your argument the last few weeks. They didn't want it visually looking like they had three world titles. Yet they still do have three world titles, except visually they only have two. Visually, they have four. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, well, that's, I mean, a, that's what we don't know. But you know, this would have this would have been this all would have been a lot easier if you just let Cody Rhodes win at WrestleMania, <laughs> you know? or it you didn't do you know, battle. or you didn't do the greatest WrestleMania match of all time, or what I forgot what it was called, once in a lifetime or whatever. The, uh, Roman yeah. Reigns, Brock Lesnar, so didn't merge the titles. I I think you're right. I think this is them trying to emphasize a 1000 day reign as WWE champion, even though it's technically not. That. Right. They're just going to tell you that that's what it is as opposed to, Hey, when I go to WWE champions, Wikipedia page, which I have up right now, it doesn't have Roman reigns listed among the longest reigns. What was, what was that whole deal? Mm-hmm. And this is what happens when you created the universal title. And, and I just, it's weird. I just, I, I'm going to continue to harp on it. I really hate that it says undisputed champion on the thing because it's literally not the case anymore. You've created within WWE. You are not a, you are not a undisputed champion anymore. And they're just going with it. And that's just on top of not liking the belt. That's not, it's on top of Roman and Paul Heyman walking out with three belts. It's on top of like, what is this planning, man? Like what is this layout? This rollout has been extremely confusing for everybody. And I'm very surprised that they have not had more of a plan to this. It was also kind of a disappointing ceremony. Like if you just compare it to the world heavyweight championship. It was barely a ceremony. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like they made this huge. Now, now look, the the storyline was great. Like we're not trying to like nitpick Mm -hmm. the fact that the, the bloodline story that we got, the segment was fantastic, but they did not have him defend the title on day 1000, even though they had a show on that day. Then they pushed off the celebration for a thousand days to a thousand six days or whatever it was. And then the entire ceremony is like a very quick unveiling of an ugly title and then just completely going away from it. So they didn't really deliver what they promised, even though the segment was certainly better than a pure celebration segment would have been. But yes, you're right. This whole thing has been kind of clunky and really, I just want it to be smooth so we can move forward. Now, Friday on SmackDown, if Roman comes out with one title, and that's all they do, and everything I just explained is exactly as it's happening, then okay, we can finally move on. But for one week, it was indeed messy. Agree. All right. And I I really do think they are going to try to just basically reverse canon, canonize it into being Roman Reigns has been WWE champion. No, I don't, I want to be clear. I don't think they're going to do that at all, actually. I don't know if I if I, you're I misinterpreting what I said. Kinda, I think they're going to. They can't. They can't unless they do a side by side title reign, which doesn't make sense. No, they're just they're good. They're just going to say it like it won't show up. on. Wikipedia, oh, yeah, they'll say it. Try to- Correct. Yeah, they'll just say he was WWE champion for however many days. Thousand percent. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's move to the second part of our main event. 
the World Heavyweight Championship match, the first defense of the title, Seth Rollins against Damian Priest. Now, Raw opened with Rollins getting an extended serenade once again. He then explained it's been two years since a top title was defended on the show. I am assuming it was the Bobby Lashley Miz match, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, He said he wants to fight the best, and Judgment Day actually fits that bill. So Priest and Finn Balor interrupted, with Rollins actually annoyed because he was literally just praising them. So he's like, what's the problem? Why are you guys even out here? Priest gave Rollins credit for having the balls to do an open challenge, but said he could win without any help from Judgment Day. So Seth said, okay, let's make that a stipulation. They're barred from ringside. He also completely savaged Finn two different times in this promo, first about losing to him in the semifinal, and then Balor having one of the shortest title reigns in history. This was a really solid stage setter, not just for Raw, but almost certainly Money in the Bank as well. Given how strongly Rollins went after Balor and the fact that Finn wasn't in a Money in the Bank qualifier and the fact that Finn is, of course, European, it is an absolute no-brainer to run Rollins, Balor in London. Later in the show, it sure seemed like we were heading in that direction, but from an opening segment, again, to set the scene for both this match and perhaps Money in the Bank, I thought they knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Also, by the way, Rollins, he tweeted, he said it was Big E was the last defender of the crown on Raw. Okay. I think that, um, I assume that that doesn't count uh, uh, the Cashin, the the Miz, Lashley Cashin, I guess. Although, didn't Lashley win it from Miz on Raw? I thought Lashley beat Miz on Raw. Uh, Miz cashed in and then Lashley challenged him and they goaded him into defending the title, then Lashley beat him. Like the next, it was like the next the week. The next or week, like I that. think. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know, but yeah, Rollins tweeted that it was Big E in November 2021. Um, so that's that's what that was. Um, opening segment was good. It it all made sense. I just came back to what I said last week, which was, I I think Rollins should have defended the title against Dominic. Like you, you do, you beat Dominic. Then you do Priest this week, and then you're doing possibly Finn Balor at Money in the Bank. Like mm-hmm. I think that would have made all the sense in the world. I didn't love that like world title match was determined via like open challenge on Twitter, like on during before SmackDown or something like that. There was there was no build to it in that sense. Mm-hmm. We just kind of got it, and that's why I was like, there appeared to be no planning. If you had planned this ahead you could easily have Rollins work his way through the Judgment Day and they all get the shots. Open challenge is a way to kind of get around it, but Damian Priest has uh, not had a winning month. You know, going back, he lost uh, to Bad Bunny at Backlash. Mm -hmm. He lost to Rollins in the World Heavyweight Championship Qualifier, Triple Threat. Triple Threat. He lost to Rollins in the tag match last week, and now he's getting a title shot. So that was... Uh, a little strange as well, but open challenge, sure. That's why I think if you had just made the story, the Judgment Day, kind of going through them as you know, one by one, but sure, that was fine. Yeah, I think that that's a fair criticism of the entire thing. More than anything, though, it was kind of just Rollins living up to the promise of being a fighting champion, which is what they're trying mm-hmm. to establish this title as. And by them kind of saying, hey, you know, Priest, who's an upper mid-carter, He's not a main eventer, really, even though he you know, had a huge match with Bad Bunny. He's an upper mid-carder. He's not going to challenge for the title at a premium live event. Let's just kind of give them a really good match on TV for the first defense. 
for all of those reasons, I was completely accepting of it. But you're right. It would have been a little bit better if at least they started a story last week on Raw and that led to the open challenge and it made sense for Priest to answer the open challenge based on the story we got last week on Raw. That would have made it much more palatable. I agree. Yeah, we just got a tag match and then a random Twitter open challenge. If you weren't watching the show, you didn't know it. And then title match. Again, plan these things out a couple weeks in advance. So getting to the match, which of course main evented Raw, these guys absolutely went at it. Priest caught Rollins Tope Suicida for a flatliner into the announce table. Rollins caught him on the ropes with a superplex. Priest tried countering the Falcon Arrow into a vertical suplex, but Rollins hit the arrow anyway. He added three Tope Suicidas with Priest flying over the desk. Then Seth hit a frog splash and countered into a pedigree for a delayed 2.5 count. Rollins then hit him hard with a barricade bomb. And this thing made so much noise. Like commentary Mm. called out the fact that Rollins injured Balor with a barricade bomb in that Universal Championship match. And I got to be honest, it sounded like Rollins injured Priest here. I know he didn't and everything was totally fine. But the noise it made was so loud where you're like, oh, shit, that. That looked like it hurt. Uh, Balor tried interfering anyway, despite being barred from ringside. He immediately ate a super kick. Priest then caught Rollins coming back inside with South of Heaven for a near fall and briefly admonished Balor, wondering what he was doing there when he promised he wouldn't be there. Uh, Priest's shoulder gave out when he tried a razor's edge. That gave Rollins an opening for his rolling forearms and the stomp to retain the title. Balor then got in Rollins' face as Raw went off the air. So obviously we have to start by pointing out that this match was an absolute banger. They got an extended main event time. Priest continues to look like that upper mid-carder, lower tier main eventer, even in defeat once again, like you pointed out. It's just great to see him booked strong and elevated, even if he's not getting the Ws to match. He was the perfect first challenger for Rollins as they just didn't want to waste any of that capital, like I mentioned, on a premium live event challenger throwing that on TV. But what really makes this interesting is the Balor angle. We've seen the jealousy deal before between faction members going after a title. But Balor seemed to feel bad in the moment before he was rightly enraged at the end staring at Rollins, given the way he was just verbally run through in that opening segment. There is a booking where Balor gets excommunicated from Judgment Day and J.D. McDonough replaces him in a repeat of what they did with Edge. You know, it was Edge out, Balor in, Balor out, McDonough in, something like that. And Finn as a babyface makes sense. He's the one out of this group that could turn baby easiest and it would work. But for me, Chris, it feels like splitting up Judgment Day would be completely forced and too much too soon. If anything, I'd rather this be the first drips of a potential breakup, the first drips of dissension that does not explode for months upon months from now. Yeah, I don't break up Judgment Day. They are as popular as they've ever been. They just main evented Backlash. Uh, Rhea and Dominic's the most over heel in the company. Like, don't don't break them up. Even if it's one person going their own way, just I don't want to deal with that. So hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but you're right. They did kind of plant some seeds toward that possibility, I guess. So we'll see. The buckle bomb, man, they got me. I totally fell for it when when 
Priest got in the ring and was just straight up having his arm down while doing some other <laughs> things. I was like, oh, yeah. they're just. I was like, oh, they're just going to get into the finish here and get out of this. Um, totally, totally got me on it. Uh, and then as a couple moves later, I realized, oh, okay, I think they're selling it. Oh, it's because of the, the Finn Balor thing. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, that's a great idea. That really made sense. And I totally got worked. And I love that I got worked. So uh, good. Because that buckle bomb, Rollins, like, had to go a very far distance, you know, before throwing him. And his increase is a big guy he could barely see. Like, it totally would have made sense as a possibility of where he could have hurt him so uh in the end you could tell that he didn't and it ended up being just a really really good sell job by priest and the match was match was good match was fun match was got the, got the expected result that's good i i want more of this stuff like again even back like i said back in the attitude era you i remember there was a there was a uh, an episode of raw where i think gold dust got a got a championship shot against steve austin or something like that like just do that sometimes it makes everything feel a little bit more important makes you feel like anything could happen makes you feel like anybody could be brought up to this level Mm -hmm. and i think priest even in a loss uh looks better just overall standing wise from it so good job all around are you in agreement and are you down for rollins balor world heavyweight championship at money in the bank i'm in a hundred percent agreement it's going to happen I'm trying to remember these guys in their history and if they have really good matches together or not. They like do. You would assume that they do. Yeah. And, and we just saw the um, semifinal for the World Heavyweight Championship. Remember, they did the triple threats. Yeah. Then they had the semifinal match on Raw. That was very good. Their oh, Universal yeah, Championship match guess, yeah, was very yeah, good for right. the inaugural title. Um, and they've had other one-on-one matches that were very good as well. Yeah, so they've they've got a pretty good track record. Yeah, that'll work. It, it, the crowd will be interesting because I think the crowd will be totally behind both of them uh, in London. Oh so yeah, absolutely be fun. So uh, that you know that makes sense. Like it, it, Rollins' first pay per view title defense. Is it a guy he just fought on the way to the belt? Yes, um, but like Finn Balor's a guy who can be in that spot, and it's fine. So yeah. that that works for me. It also just makes the most sense for the show. Like, look. Backlash in Puerto Rico, they put a lot of Puerto Ricans on the show. For Money in the Bank in London, they're going to put a lot of Europeans on the show. Guess what? Imperium's probably going to challenge for the tag team titles. Uh, Gunther is going to defend the Intercontinental Championship on the show, most likely against Matt Riddle. You're probably going to have Finn Balor in this spot. Becky Lynch is going to be featured in the women's Money in the Bank match. And there's others too. So they're making a concerted... Oh, Sheamus could potentially go after the United States Championship on the show. So they're making a concerted effort to put their European talent front and center for a show in Europe. And that's exactly what you should do. We saw how it worked, not just at uh, Backlash with the Puerto Ricans, but Clash at the Castle last year. And that show was not as loaded with that talent as this one looks like it's going to be. Really, the only person they're missing is Drew McIntyre, who remains out both well, with injury and familial reasons. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on with him. Um, but this show is going to be loaded with European talent, and that's going to make it even more exciting. What's interesting, Chris, is a lot of that talent are heels, and that's going to be different from well, Backlash. Also, they're, they're mostly Irish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, true. And, and Drew's from Scotland, you know, they're not at I, I, Austria. I, I gotta look at the roster, but yeah, exactly. they're not. There's actually not as many straight up English wrestlers. I guess you got Butch, right? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, 
so that's that's interesting as well that it's actually you know it's still close i mean not not all of them are even many of them are not even british like you know so no true but like it's it's an important clarification just you know to understand relationships uh over there well england is only so big though i mean it's you know it's not like it's not like the united states in terms of size ireland but Ireland. No, but what I'm saying is they need out wrestlers like crazy. What I'm saying is you're not going to have five talents on the show from England. I don't even think WWE has five talents from England on the main roster. I, I, I that's think, what I'm saying. Right. I just, it just kind of popped into my head. So they're doing the best they like, can. Hey, Drew, <laughs> it's where like, hey, Drew, Drew's got this title match. Well, it's not technically home. It's in Wales. You, people got to figure out what Wales is. He's from Scotland, but like they're all British. So you kind of get that. Ireland and uh, Ireland and Britain, uh, quite famously, not always sure. the best of terms. Of course, but still, it's it's a <laughs> so, it's a continental um, person that you can cheer. At least they're yeah, at no, least they're close they'll, nearby. They'll, they'll, you. they'll get they'll get cheered. They'll <laughs> yeah. get cheered for sure. I just no, it's it's, it's always, fair. It's, it's fair. It's not it's not like saying hey, we got a bunch of you know English on the show. It's it's Europeans and it's close, yeah. but but also a lot of them are heels. So maybe that'll play into it, right? Maybe. Because there's Irish and because um, Gunther's Austrian, maybe they're not going to cheer them and their heels anyway, so they're not supposed look, to get cheered, right? Look, I, for for the sake of heat, I would love if Finn Balor started talking about uh, the troubles and everything else that went on and making some very inappropriate IRA uh, comments. Oh man, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I don't. I do not think that's a good idea. The way, especially the way uh, no. wrestling fans conflate one little mention into. The, Oh, they're trying to do this angle about this very distasteful thing. That yeah, happened. no, yeah, they are going to stay idea. away from that. I'm just saying if we're if we're if we wanted to fully lean into it. So. Well, I did not I, think I, that I, we would end the main event, Chris, and end your time on this particular episode of the show talking about the IRA. Nevertheless, that's exactly what has happened. Uh, we do appreciate you, of course, taking your time on your work trip uh, to stop by and yeah. cover WWE in this main event. So thank you for that. I will. I'll, I'll report back also next week uh, on my performance center trip on, on how that was. Fantastic. And I do hope you get good access over there. With that, it is time for the Silver King to continue solo as we move into the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade, it just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some... It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. All right, let's break down everything else that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week. Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn were backstage at Raw with Sami proud of Jimmy Uso for finally standing up to Roman before saying, hey, this bloodline stuff, no longer our problem. This was actually a hint of real sports because it made all the sense in the world for the interviewer to go and get Zane's thoughts on the Bloodline story, even though he's no longer involved. I loved that. Imperium interrupted, reminding they are now the problem of Sammy and KO. Owens went on the same rant he did last week from them interrupting him. Gunther stepped up saying that KO lacked discipline, and Owens just went wild on him, immediately challenged him to a match. Not only that, charged his ass to the ring to make sure it got started right away. And holy shit, we got Gunther versus KO for the first time ever, one-on-one. Never in WWE, never on the independents, nowhere. So we got this match. It was non-title. 
Gunther destroyed KO into the barricade early, then got knees up to block a swanton bomb. In fact, KO basically got his ass kicked for 12 straight minutes. They eventually traded big-time German suplexes, and Owens finally hit a few super kicks plus a cannonball. Gunther came back with a short-range shotgun dropkick. Owens hit a fisherman's buster. Gunther hit an avalanche double underhook suplex, but KO got his knees up on a splash and came back with the swanton bomb. The crowd was unglued. The seconds all brawled outside, but as Owens caught Ludwig Kaiser with the stunner in the ring, Gunther rolled him up. And when I say roll up, it's not a real roll up. It's like a Gunther roll up, which is all the weight in the world on Owens' shoulders. He also held down his arm to really make it impactful for the one, two, three in 18 minutes. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, folks. Gunther and Kevin Owens delivered a banger. This was one of the best WWE TV matches in a long time. It might as well have been for the Intercontinental title, given the finish, but that's not even a gripe. Owens sold his ass off for Gunther, and the fans were legitimately in the palm of their hands the entire match. This could have main evented any TV show and plenty of premium live events. We got the taste of a singles feud they absolutely must revisit down the line coming out of this match. It's a no-brainer good. And in terms of a match grade, I actually am realizing now, I think I forgot to give one for Rollins and Priest. Both of these matches were A matches on television. If you want to quibble between 4.5 and 4.25 stars, you can. I'm kind of right in between. I almost wish there was like a numerical rating. I could give one 4.4 and the other 4.3 or something like that. This one was slightly better than Rollins and Priest, but they were right there next to each other. Equally great matches, A matches on Raw. Two of them in a single show. Incredible stuff. The booking here is one of those key night and day differences between WWE and AEW. WWE has these guys in an ongoing storyline, yes. However, they booked this match completely on the fly with zero promotion. In AEW, there would be no storyline at all, but the match would be announced one to two weeks in advance because it's a first time ever meeting and they want to build anticipation and get eyeballs to the screen. It's just two completely different approaches. My preference is actually smack in the middle of the two. Because for plenty of fans, this is a must-watch match, and it should be promoted, but of course it needs a storyline to make it really matter. My gripe with WWE is there's plenty of fans who don't watch your product live, but if they knew this match was happening on the show, they would have specifically tuned in for it. That helps your ratings. Hey, look, I'm glad we got it rather than not. It was a hell of a match. I'm just kind of explaining the way this could have benefited them a little bit more from a business standpoint. Matt Riddle backstage said he was tired of seeing Imperium cheat week after week. Kaiser and Giovanni Vinci got in his face for talking trash about Gunther. Kaiser poked Riddle in the chest twice, which led to Riddle completely snapping. He threw Kaiser over a road case and got Vinci in an ankle lock submission, which he uses just not really that frequently. It was a good segment to presumably build a singles match next week before Riddle eventually challenges Gunther for the Intercontinental title. Riddle being able to turn on that serious dial and not just turn it on, but turn it all the way up like that is what his character has been missing. Miz TV featured Cody Rhodes as a guest. Obviously, the entrance was thunderous. Miz remarked that Cody looked dashing 
and his challenge to Brock Lesnar was stupid. Rhodes said apparently Lesnar is on his annual hibernation, which let's be honest here, Brock has wrestled and appeared on TV far more often recently than perhaps during his entire second run that he's had in his career. Anyway, Miz surprised Cody with another second generation star in Dominic Mysterio, who came out, of course, with Rhea Ripley. We got the incredible extended deafening booze for Dom, who said Cody is a bad father like Ray because he's on the road injured instead of at home taking care of his new daughter. Cody made fun of Dom's hard times and said, you even have a worse prison tattoo than me, which just straight up sent me. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. He said he's made mistakes like Ray and called Dom one of those mistakes. Dom went to leave, so Cody turned his back only to get smacked, and then Rhea stepped between them as Dom slinked out of the ring. Miz laughed at Cody after this was over, so Rhodes just swung the cast and knocked him out right on the top of the head. What was interesting and frustrating here is this was such a hot segment, but it ended on a downbeat, which was really unfortunate. It was like some of those Saturday Night Live sketches where you're just laughing your ass off, and then you're like, wait, how are they going to end this? And they just get out of it in the most ridiculous way. That's kind of what happened here. It was still good, though. Don't get me wrong. The back and forths between Cody, Miz, and Dom all worked. Ripley played her role perfectly. And this sure feels like it's going to be an in-between feud for Cody at Money in the Bank as they put Brock off until SummerSlam. I still have a kayfabe problem with Rhodes literally not taking any time off despite having a broken arm that, based on the way they described the ailment, I googled it. It was a minimum three-month injury. You can't do shit for three months, but he's never stopped wrestling, and he's going to have a match on the show that he doesn't really need to have, but he's doing it because it's a big deal in London. If you're going to do that, though, why not describe the injury differently or give Cody something that wouldn't, in reality, require him to be out of action for multiple months? That's just frustrating. Also a note, This had to be fun for Ripley, who, for those who don't know, idolized Miz as a kid when she was getting into wrestling. This is the most time they've ever spent in a ring together and probably the most fun I would assume they had. But my real frustration here has nothing to do with Cody or Dom or Miz. It's that Rhea Ripley is almost living in this world right now on Raw where she's the only female main eventer and no one is interested in going after her title. I mean, Natty did. And we saw what happened there. That was just to kind of set up a match for Night of Champions. And I understand that like Becky Lynch and Trish Stratus and Zoe Stark, most notably, are in this money in the bank type of situation while feuding with each other. But Rhea Ripley needs challengers. There are women on this brand that could step up and fight her. And they're just not doing anything with her. So she's still on TV. She's still getting pop. She's still super popular but she needs to be wrestling. She's the champion. And that to me is immensely frustrating. Asuka guested on the Grayson Waller effect on SmackDown. She celebrated speaking and laughing in Japanese. He made believe he understood her and talked about Money in the Bank and Bianca Belair possibly coming back after her. Then Asuka started leaking mist from her mouth when Eosky entered ranting at her in Japanese. I think she actually called her a piece of shit a couple of times. Obviously, it got past censors because it's in Japanese. Uh, They screamed back and forth until Bailey, Shotzi, Lacey Evans, and Zelina Vega entered in succession, cutting short promos. Zelina's was easily the best out of all of them. Waller, meanwhile, was kind of talking to himself about how great America is because he's 
in a ring and there's tons of girls there with him. It ended with Asuka saying no one is ready for Asuka before Belair attacked her on the stage in a pull-apart brawl with Asuka twice pulling on her braid. Now, I was on my way to giving this a bad when Asuka and Io were out. Not because I give a shit about them speaking Japanese or any of that, but rather because there was nothing we could glean from it. However, as the segment progressed, I enjoyed it more as a stage setter, both for the women's title feud and Money in the Bank. It was a good way to kind of mix them together. And Waller was funny on top of everything else. This is one of those standard WWE segments you are going to get at some point during the year. If not for Money in the Bank, you get it for another match like a Survivor Series or something else involving a team aspect or qualification matches or whatever the case might be. So I'm ultimately going to lean good here at the end, but it was a rough road to get to that grade. Speaking of Money in the Bank, let's go ahead and break down all the qualifiers from this week as well as what is still to come. We had Vega against Evans on SmackDown during commercial. Lacey hit Zelina with the women's right, putting her at an immediate disadvantage before the bell even rang. And then Zelina won with Code Red in two minutes and 30 seconds. LWO and Rey Mysterio rallied themselves backstage with Rey suggesting Zelina and Santos Escobar would win the respective briefcases. Money in the Bank qualifier, two minutes and 30 seconds. What a fucking pathetic joke. Why even do qualifiers if you can't give them five or six minutes? I liked the LWO segment, but this is an automatic bad. The only positive is that my gut feeling about Lacey winning was wrong, and I'm thrilled that was wrong. But this was bullcrap. This is for crap! Montez Ford fought LA Knight. LA got chance at the bell with commentary acknowledging his fan support. Knight actually did a springboard moonsault that failed. Knight then dodged a frog splash. Ford avoided blunt force trauma and countered into an O'Connor roll. So Knight countered back and grabbed the rope on the three count to get the win in 10 minutes. After the bell, Knight set up a ladder and climbed it before ranting off Mike. Now this worked and the fans were completely behind him. Commentary addressed it and noted it both on SmackDown and I think on Raw as well. But the match actually did not meet my expectations for what I thought we would get from these two. We did get the right winner. Knight is the one in need of the push, and there were fun elements here, so it's an easy good. The only criticism is there should have been promo time either before or after the bell. Once he climbs up that ladder, he should have a mic in his hand, say his two lines, crowd chants with him, throw the mic down, move on. I don't know why you wouldn't do that. It's time and again, they keep missing opportunities to let this guy speak when that is the single thing that makes him popular. Becky Lynch fought Sonya Deville in the first of two women's qualifiers on Raw. This was the opening match on the show. After three minutes, Trish Stratus and Zoe Stark entered to watch from the ramp. Lynch dominated most of the match and looked really smooth. Chelsea Green caught Becky with a boot outside as Sonya added a pump knee inside in a semi-false finish. Lynch soon after absolutely murked Green and Deville into the barricade. Sonya countered manhandle slam and Chelsea tried to help her cheat by holding Sonya's feet on the ropes, but... It didn't work, and she didn't get ejected, so worthwhile cheating. Becky then caught Sonya flying off the ropes in a really strange spot, hitting Manhandle Slam for the win in 12 minutes. With Lynch and Stark in the two women's qualifiers, I wrongly assumed that they might cost each other spots and then fight one-on-one at Money in the Bank, so I'm glad that presumption was wrong. In fact, my presumptions about all three of these women's qualifiers was just straight up incorrect, but that's okay. Money in the Bank needs star power, and there's no bigger star in the division than Bex. 
Beyond the booking, though, the women getting time here was proof of precisely what I always say. Longer matches offer opportunities to showcase talent and create long-term believability in them. Sonia and Chelsea came out of this looking like smart heels who had a game plan and are therefore capable of winning both as singles or a team because they got up on Becky multiple times. She also struggled to put Sonia away. Compare this booking to the Zelina Lacey 152nd shit fest that I just discussed, and it's legitimately night and day between them. I'm not saying that those two should have gotten 12 minutes, but how about half of that time? Anyway, if you can't tell already, obvious and easy call as good. The second qualifier, Stark against Natalia. Trish took out Natty's knee behind the referee's back with Stark hitting Z360 for the win in four minutes. Obviously the right winner, especially with Becky winning the other match, but I'd have rather seen Stark beat someone like Dana Brooke or Zia Lee or something if the match was going to be like this. This is borderline, but I'll side with bad due to the length and the fact that this did not help Zoe at all. If you want her to look strong and legitimate, she needs to beat Natalia for real. Six, seven, eight minutes, maybe without Trish helping or she helps, but it doesn't directly factor into the finish. The finish happens a couple minutes later. I just didn't like the booking that we got here. Now, the men's qualifiers for Friday are Santos Escobar against Mustafa Ali and Butch against Baron Corbin. I can't help but wonder why two free agents who literally just showed up on NXT last Tuesday are getting money in the bank qualifying matches. What about Edge, Rey Mysterio, AJ Styles, Bobby Lashley, Sheamus, Angelo Dawkins, Karrion Cross, Rick Boogs? I could keep going. I just don't get this at all. It does not compute for me. I'm as big a fan as any for the guys in these matches, meaning Santos Escobar and Butch. And their additions to the ladder match are welcome. They're going to make it a fantastic match. But it does not have top-level star power right now. Assuming those guys win, it's going to be Butch, Santos Escobar, Ricochet, and Shinsuke Nakamura. And if you're trying to book a match that the Silver King's going to get excited about, well, two thumbs up because you're doing it. But that's also four baby faces with two open spots. You have to assume those are going to be heels. There's no qualifier announced for Raw yet. And again, there's a lack of top-level star. You can say Nakamura is one, and you, you can make an argument for Ricochet based on fan response, but these are not names where you say, oh, one of these guys is a no-doubt winner, or you know, this is a person who needs to immediately be elevated into world title contention. They don't have that right now. And therefore, the men's match seems a little weak, even though I have no doubt it will be super entertaining. And I am very curious to see who the last two qualifiers will be, assuming that Escobar and Butch are the two here. And I have to believe Butch will be. We just had that conversation about putting Europeans on the card and putting actual English people on the card. And there's very few. Butch is one of them. So he will certainly have to imagine win and be part of that match. Now for the women, we're going to have Mia Yim against Bailey and Shotzi against Io Sky. These are interesting. Io should 100% be in the match. I would have said that Bailey needs to be in as well, except they aren't lacking for star power in the women's match like they are with the men, given the fact that Becky Lynch is in it and Trish Stratus will be around it, even though she won't be wrestling. 
it would make a lot of sense for Bailey to be in the match. But what I would probably lean towards doing is having Mia Yim beat Bailey, give Mia the shine. We've seen her before in ladder matches and hardcore extreme type matches. She will absolutely go. Bailey can then be jealous that Io got in and she did not. That's how I would book it. We'll see what they do. Caden Carter and Katana Chance got an extended promo package showing off their athletic achievements and success in NXT with the spotlight on their tag team moves. They came across as ultra white meat baby faces, which is exactly the way they should be booked. Other than them still not having a team name, which should have happened two years ago, by the way, this was fantastic. It was not just good, but way better than last week in every conceivable way. And it was just the start of what we got with them on Raw. We had Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler backstage saying they manifested this tag team championship reign a while ago and were focused on legitimizing the entire division. Kaden and Katana immediately stepped up wanting to debut against them. Rousey called them munchkins and stupid. Baszler said they were ignorant, but brave, and they would suffer for their bravery. And I gotta tell you, sure, Ronda's still rough on the mic, but this was her third straight perfectly acceptable promo. She is doing much better as of late. There was a report out there that WWE pre-taped a number of segments um, earlier than they aired on Raw. So for example, if something went at 9.30, it might've gotten taped at 9.10 or 8.50 or something like that. And this was one of those segments that was pre-taped. Guess what? Good. I don't need every single thing to be live. What I need is for Ronda Rousey to sound like a competent human being on the mic. And if you're going to tape it ahead of time and deliver a backstage segment like this. I'm not here to say that it was some historic backstage segment or anything like that. But when they come off sounding capable and they're the champions, they need to come off sounding that way. And all four women in that confrontation sounded as good as they did, then it's a good idea to go ahead and pre-tape things like that. Anyway, we got Rousey and Baszler against Carter and Chance in a non-title match. The faces got some of their team offense early, Rousey had chance in an armbar over the top rope before the faces took her out, with Katana hitting a tornillo over the top rope. Caden hit the draping knee spike and dodged Ronda into the post. The faces then hit after party, the assisted elevated 450 splash finisher, with Baszler breaking the fall. Chance then broke a Rousey ankle lock and hit a code breaker. Baszler took Carter down with a Saito suplex and then submitted her with the Kurafuda clutch in six minutes. Now, if you have listened to me talk, about professional wrestling any time in the last four or five years, you know I have been talking up Caden and Katana. I've called them the best and most legitimate women's tag team in the entire company. I wanted them on the main roster last year. And most importantly, I hoped when they eventually got called up, they were not compartmentalized due to their size because they, and especially Casey Catanzaro, are indeed very small. And I see this transpire on Raw with dread washing over me. Holy shit. They're finally going to debut them after all this time and just feed them like chum to Rousey and Baszler. Except I forgot one thing. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. We like to think we can book wrestling better than those who actually do it. But this is one of those cases where I simply have no notes. It was legitimately perfect. They went head to head with a couple big bads with real MMA bona fides. 
They largely dominated the match offensively. It was at least 50-50. Showcased exactly why they are a special duo with their team offense, and they slowly but surely won the crowd over. Would I have liked a bigger response? Sure. But it generally and unfortunately takes fans longer to warm up to women wrestlers. If the Casey's keep getting featured like this, it's not going to take that long. Triple H needs to double up on this next week and put the Casey's over, let's say, Sonya and Chelsea clean in a decent length match. That is how you establish talent, capitalize on momentum, and build a division. No surprise here, my grade is good, but let me hammer it home one more time because this one really mattered to me. Thank you! And by the way, this was a six-minute match, which accomplished so much more than three-minute bullshit. Still not long enough generally, but appropriate here given the champions are dominant and legitimate. Ricochet fought Shinsuke Nakamura. Ricochet and Bronson Reed talked trash in gorilla position, with Reed claiming to have dominated Nakamura, which brought out Shin to give him the side eye. Then the faces had a good-natured challenge. Rick hit a standing shooting star press. Nakamura came back with a sliding German suplex and exploder, but Ricochet countered Kinshasa with a pump knee and hit recoil. Reed came in and tried to hit Ricochet only to squash Shinsuke in the corner for a disqualification. There was a cool moment where Nakamura tried to warn Ricochet that Reed was running towards them, so a babyface looking out for a babyface. Reed hit a standing splash on Shin with Rick on his back. Then he followed with Tsunami to the back of Ricochet as the crowd once again popped for the move and actually chanted one more time for a heel against one of the top babyfaces in the entire company after the bell. Reed waved them off and left to booze. It was a good match, and given it was face versus face, the booking was acceptable. I'll always prefer, though, a clean finish. Key here is that Reed is clearly over as a heel, and the pettiness that he kind of showed I thought was really fun character work. The Brawling Brutes fought Austin Theory and Pretty Deadly on SmackDown. Theory heavily put himself over before introducing Pretty Deadly to a new straight-up awful theme that's a total ripoff of ABBA. Way worse than what they used for their debut, which was an improved remix of their NXT theme. So I have absolutely no idea what they're doing here. It seemed completely unnecessary to change it entirely. Theory was pulled out of the ring after a bro kick, so Sheamus hit a rare top rope splash outside. Theory later spun off his shoulders for a powerbomb. Ridge Holland did a double suplex of Deadly before the Brutes all did 10 beats. Sheamus got run into the post with Deadly using the ring apron to hide from Holland. That allowed a blindside and spilt milk with Theory tagging in somewhat unnecessarily for the one, two, three to some solid heat. The match went three segments. It almost felt like a taped show to have a random match like this go so long, but the wrestling was entertaining and it was important for the heels to win because they keep getting built on SmackDown, particularly pretty deadly. So it was a definite good. The Good Brothers fought Hit Row. The OC backstage wished AJ Styles a happy birthday. He apologized for losing the World Heavyweight Championship, which they shrugged off and instead decided to focus on the Hit Row diss track released earlier Friday on social media to set up the match. The OC entered to Styles' music instead of the OC music, which I thought was weird. The Good Brothers won with Magic Killer in a few minutes. Top Dollar attacked after the bell with Styles hitting Phenomenal Forearm to end it. Honestly, the best part about this was Top Dollar looking trim as Hell, man, the guy must have lost at least 40 pounds, maybe more. The match didn't have a worthwhile storyline. It was short. It sucked. It just felt like a total waste of time. So it wasn't insulting or anything, but it was bad. Alpha Academy backstage on Raw briefly discussed and argued about last week's loss. 
Chad Gable gave Otis credit for getting them all together, the brain, the brawn, and now the beauty, Maxine Dupree. Maxine was disgusted by the Viking Raiders. Gable said he taught Otis a bunch of stuff about them. He spit out a bunch of word salad that I had no idea what he even said. And the guys prepared to start training Maxine so she can fight Valhalla in the future. This certainly made sense as far as like what they're doing, but it was rough and it actually gets a bad for me. I'm far less interested in this storyline than Maxine with the Maximum Male Models, whether or not recruiting Otis to join them with Gable potentially going single. This is just kind of boring, at least for now. Johnny Gargano got a promo package about being labeled an underdog his entire career, only for his heart and will to lead him to get signed by WWE and eventually become the face of NXT. He said he's done it in his own special way, and his story is just getting started. Exactly what we've been wanting to get from Gargano for like six months. You gotta give fans a reason to care about someone that they don't otherwise know from NXT. This was perfect and well done. It does seem like Tommaso Ciampa is on the way back. It does seem like the way is going to be a thing. They keep teasing it. So this was good on its own. In fact, it was one of the best like vignettes that they've done for someone, video promo packages, whatever you wanna call it, in a long time. This was a perfect presentation of Gargano, and I remain very excited about his future in WWE. There was a legitimately creepy vignette for the Unholy Union, which was finally given that name officially as a team. We've been talking about it for weeks. They actually did it. We're talking Alba Fire and Isla Dawn here, of course. It was someone speaking in like Latin overlooking a snowy forest before like tons of cult-like imagery, way better than what we got last week as well, and ever so slightly disturbing. It almost had a feel of like, A24, that movie production company, something like that. It was good. Uh, One of our listeners, Blake Murphy, said it was a take on Showtime's popular Yellow Jacket series. This is something I've been meaning to watch for years. I heard it's fantastic. I actually think I've mentioned it on this show a few times. It's definitely on my short list now. I got caught up a bunch of stuff over the last couple of weeks. I'm just going to presume that he's right, and this was a takeoff of Yellow Jackets. Cameron Grimes backstage was angry about Baron Corbin attacking Carmelo Hayes on NXT, telling Pierce he wanted him next time he was on SmackDown. And that's all we got here. This is the second time where Grimes has been in a segment since his debut where like nothing has happened. And we later learned that Corbin is going to be on SmackDown this coming Friday, except he's getting a Money in the Bank qualifier. This despite him being a free agent, which means Grimes won't even get him. So what was the point of doing this segment at all? I'm just utterly confused by this. In fact, it should have been Grimes in the qualifying match. This was bad. And lastly, Cedric Alexander and Shelton Benjamin had a scheduled match with Indu Sher on Raw. The heels attacked before the bell, completely laying out the, I guess now, faces. The referee waved off the match, so Indu Sher combined for an assisted elevated elbow drop on Cedric to end the segment. It was better than the poorly executed squash last week, but I hate Cedric looking that week. No grade because it wasn't a match and was barely a segment. And folks, that about wraps up the week in WWE. We just broke down everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw. This would normally be the part of the show where we drop the last word, but without having vintage Chris Vanini on for the rest of the program, I decided to push that to next week. It's a lot more fun in the last word when we're able to go back and forth on a given topic. On the way out, allow me to remind you that this podcast is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, if you take a little extra time and leave a five-star review on Apple, we will read it live right here on the show. 
Please also remember to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more again on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And one more reminder on the way out. I happen to love the number five. And we would love for you to become an official Getting Overhead for only $5 a month. Join us over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio after the four major American television shows, news posts, and much more. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over $5 a month. Forget the extras. You get to support the show with that contribution. I appreciate you all listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. As Chris said earlier, episode 450. This is just incredible. We will be back on Thursday with our next show, covering everything that happened this past week in the world of AEW and NXT. And then one week from now, same bat time, same bat channel, your next WWE edition of the podcast on Tuesday. With that, it is now time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.